So what makes a fad a fad and why do major changes in our society happen so dramatically and suddenly? Those questions are at the heart of a new book called The Tipping Point, How Little Things Make a Big Difference. It is the first book from Malcolm Gladwell of the New Yorker magazine, and I am pleased to have him back to talk about this book. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to see you. Yes. Uh, where did this idea come to you? Well, the tipping point is the word that comes from uh, from um, study of epidemics. It's the, to describe that moment in the epidemic when uh, it explodes, when the moment of critical mass. Um, and if you look at every epidemic, there is always that moment when the curve suddenly shoots up very sharply and dramatically. One and all, welcome back for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. You're here with your host, comic Nick Munez, a celebratory episode. We've got a household name, Malcolm Hardwell, spinning TV. Malcolm Gladwell's international bestseller, The Tipping Point. Mans tells a good story. In 1994, Hush Puppies sold 30,000 shoes. They were barely staying afloat. It wasn't until the East Village influencers in Manhattan, those Soho hipsters, donned that suede icon of a shoe in 1995, they start selling 430,000 pairs a year. Winning fashion design awards, Malcolm Gladwell calls this spontaneous moment of explosive growth the tipping point. We're going to do up-to-date reference. We're talking boutiques today, supreme gear, bape shit, everything, viral trends, obviously. Who would have thought that this $30 shoe would have been worn by both hippies and working folk? It's like modern-day Carhartt. How come people are wearing construction attire around? Every influencer and their mother are going to be wearing a hard hat. Well, what is this? We're getting into the economics behind the growth of these boarding brands, the sociology of viral behavior, talking about rumors. You got to stand up here today. We know the tipping point of laughter in a room. It's usually likability. There's a tipping point for hatred as well, of course. <laughs> Malcolm and his predictive models we're going to look at with a critical eye. Gladwell said in his intro, the world we inhabit is very different than the one where the rule of epidemics take hold. Of course, societal commentary, what you come to the show for. Let's burn through this about the author. You know the guy, Malcolm Gladwell. He's a 55-year-old author, podcast host, English-born into an academic family, a psychotherapist of a mom and a math teacher dad, went to University of Toronto his grades were too low for graduate school, couldn't get a marketing gig, and decided to do some independent journalism in Indiana. 1987, Gladwell began covering business and science for the Washington Post. Stayed there for a decade till 1996. He's putting in his 10,000 hours. He said, I was a basket case at the beginning, and I felt like an expert at the end. It took 10 years, exactly that long. Networked with other journalists at the time. We already did Outliers on the program. That was, I think, the second show that I ever made. And all of that going on to the backlog for the Patreon, into the Library of Congress. Those episodes are relics. It's only a book. Gladwell wrote one article that put himself over the tipping point. It was about how an $8 shirt that could be sold to whatever 10,000 people through Walmart is much more impressive than... 
selling 10 Yeezy shirts for $10,000 with the holes ripped in them. It's about being able to gain recognition, the power of the market. How the hell is this stuff even possible? Gladwell, he wrote The Tipping Point, this one, 2005, bestseller of the decade. This is a landmark today. Outliers, 2008, What the Dog Saw and Other Adventures, 2009, David and Goliath in 2013, and then started his radio show, Revisionist History, 2016, Into the Present. He's collecting all kinds of honorary awards. You know the deal. We're doing eight chapters today, and we can't ignore it. The channel is monetized. You guys might be having to sit through a five-second ad. I appreciate Every 10 seconds on the show, you're getting a fact or a funny. So this is a trade-off. It's a tipping point over here on Nick's Nonfiction. Let's toss it over to a word from our sponsors to celebrate. Hit up that Patreon. Extra content. Whole backlog is going over there. Whip clips my face. Doing live act outs. Harry shit on Instagram. You're getting a free meme every night. Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, Chapter 1. Three rules of epidemics. Got to put like a trigger warning or something for the first chapter. It starts on epidemics. And there's a bit of a hot button issue. <laughs> uh, skip to the second chapter if you are easily offended. In the mid-1990s, the classy city of Baltimore was hit with an epidemic of syphilis. From 1995 to 96, Babies were being born with the disease at an increased rate, 500% more than usual. It was a stagnant rate before. Like, you're looking at the graphs of this syphilis uptick in Baltimore. It's a 90-degree angle. It goes straight up. The CDC came in to investigate the issue, and they blamed the increase of syphilis on crack cocaine because people who smoke crack often partake in risky sexual behavior. You would think then we would see all the Johns that come into the middle city inner harbor to buy their drugs are then spreading syphilis in the suburbs when they get home with their crack, right? These two drugs are intertwined or in statistics we call it correlated. The CDC, the people who we're trusting with the world's medical theory, they're saying that they don't even fucking know the difference between correlation and causation what actually is starting the syphilis, not just people who also like drugs like the fuck. John Hopkins is based out of Baltimore, and you know that's where all the academic medical studies come from. Hopkins was like, who is this corrupt CDC? CDC is like the World Cup oil sultans who own soccer teams. It's bribery to the bones. John Hopkins, they were like, let's look at the 1990s overall, try to look at the trends of epidemics. Free physicians existed in the Baltimore Medicare scene, and it wasn't until 95 when that uptick in syphilis happened that they reduced the amount of doctors on retainer from 20 to 3. So these STD clinics, Planned Parenthood, they used to see 35,000 patients a year, and by the mid-90s, they were down to 20,000 patients per year, 60%, and they are being rushed, only three doctors patients are waiting a month to get an appointment and they're out there giving syphilis to each other did you hear crack come up anywhere in the john hopkins no it's because people don't have the ability to get their diseases in check and they just keep on keeping on in our mchealthcare system you got to be able to keep up the speed 
with these patients like throughput i'm saying it's mcdonald's <laughs> if you can't flip the patties fast enough we're gonna get hungry and eat somewhere else there was an attempt to put a distance between ghettos and the uh you know malcolm's just trying to make a political just look at it as a medical issue it has nothing to do with illegalizing drugs he was bringing up the city was going through a war on drugs and they needed to pay doctors education bills so they were using people's legal fees to subsidize doctor tuition it's all a big trade-off and his point was here again it's not those uh, suburban guys coming downtown to buy drugs that are spreading syphilis the spread was actually found around pimps like a pimp has around a hundred hoes he said 30 of his girls would be infected at a time non-existent managerial attitude he's damaging his own product <laughs> for hush puppies before our prior example their super spreader down in soho they've inflated a giant 50 foot tall basset hound and this started to spread word of mouth initiated hush puppies tipping point one of the rules of epidemics there we got to trust the CDC, though, still. They knocked it out of the park with the syphilis. McVirus. Can it or can it not spread asymptomatically? It is the quantum virus. Crouching dragon hidden symptoms. Kung flu. <laughs> the Wang Chung lung. I'm loving it. Steve Landsberg, we already read about how eradicating STDs could be done through sexual vetting women stop hooking up with pimps and your risk of syphilis is going to go down we can hold people responsible for the decisions that they want to make life comes with risk if we're going to talk about super spreaders think about the gay community they've got bug chasers over there not just spreaders malcolm gladwell bought up how aids is very evenly distributed through the gay community every part of the socioeconomic gay class from otters up to bears it's evenly spread because men like men. You know, if you meet at the gay bar, some guy with a six-pack with cum gutters, you're going to go back to his cardboard box. And then in the dating scene with syphilis, we saw the clusters around the pimps because women like resources. They don't like men. <laughs> you know, you say uh, girls, when they go out, they dress for other women. Pretty interesting epidemiology we're finding out from Gladwell. He bought up the 1918 flu deaths, doubling from 20 million to 40 million. And conveniently, that was right when the Spanish flu ended. Uh, it's almost like we're going to see... <clears throat> they had eight flu deaths in 2020 in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Things can get classified in different ways in order to spike a statistic. Maybe Hush Puppy had a merger. We're going to talk about Airwalk later and how they blew up. Got to have a PR campaign. You got to put up the giant hound downtown. Spread that word of mouth. Get your hose out on the street. You guys get the point. First part of the chapter. If you want to spread your product like a disease. And epidemics don't get smaller. He said they were a seed, but they always come back harder. The usual Malcolm mumbo-jumbo. Let's move along to chapter two, the law of the few. I am sipping on some coffee. Just give me a minute here. You know, we've done like 60 of these episodes. That's what it took for a minor tip on the scale here. I'm about to throw an elephant 
on that scale of justice. The Law of the Few, this chapter started with Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. The Redcoats are pulling up to the harbor. They're going to storm Bunker Hill. We got to assemble the Minutemen. The British are coming. The British are coming. That coffee hit good. You could tell I'm wired. Your marketing team needs connectors, mavens, and salesmen. Those are going to be the three big characters for the chapter. <laughs> Not making it any easier, Malcolm is saying you can be a combination of those three. He'll describe them all one by one, but Paul Revere was more of a connector and a maven than any sort of a salesman. You know, he knew everybody in town. He was a connector as a messenger boy, and then a maven is someone who's galvanized. He was screaming out along the way, spreading his message. Everybody needs to know the truth. And so he repeats this marketing trope that the word of mouth is, of course, going to be the default for making a decision as a consumer. We learn this immutable laws of marketing book. A person-to-person -person recommendation is the future past, present, and future. 1960s Stanley Milgram experiments were really big this chapter. Milgram, you know, he did those studies where totally unethical. He was around the Stanford prison experiment. Milgram put a normal person undercover and then a test subject in a chair. Undercover guy is sitting doing a test at the table and he's hooked up to electrodes. And the college student comes in and Milgram's like, all right, shock this guy. Every time he gets the question wrong, I'll pay you 10 bucks for every shock. College kid broke. He is fucking electrocuting, frying this actor's brain who's sitting in the seat. And Milgram is proving, like, nobody has empathy when you are behind a wall. Proving through his booger experiments that we will shock each other to death. Twitter proof. Malcolm talked about one of his less eventful studies. We're not shocking anybody. He sent letters to people in Omaha, and he was going, there's this stockbroker in Boston, and if you send him $1,000, he will match that 1000 and start investing for you, and he's got the perfect rate. And this was in the 1960s, so people were like, what the, I have no connection to anybody in Boston, but it sounds like a lot of free money, why would I not do this? And he found out through tracking these people who received the letters in Omaha, it only took them six degrees of people to locate somebody in Boston to check out the investor for them. So they called their cousin. I know this guy who knew this guy who knew this guy's cousin. And they go and scope out this investor, see if it's legit. That's how it used to go down. So Malcolm's talking about, you're six degrees away from anybody in the world. He starts talking about <laughs> Boomer the six degrees from Kevin Bacon. We used to play this when I was eight years old on those translucent backed Mac computers. Six clicks to Hitler. <laughs> we would go on Wikipedia as third graders and you make it really hard on somebody. Look up like Bothswanian lentil production and you're on that page and this guy has to try to get to Adolf Hitler's Wikipedia within six clicks. It goes to prove Stanley Milgram's Omaha experiment. <laughs> You're only six clicks, six degrees away from everybody in the world. It's a much tighter net than you think. So if you got Paul Revere, the connector maven, he's going to blow your name up to all these people. Milgram also reported that 88% of people's friends in the 60s lived in the same building. 
90% of people you know you interact with are within your vicinity. <laughs> they didn't have Facebook in their pocket. Now every friend is a life friend. Every 500 people on your list. That's wild though. So think about it. 1960s, you move. You just reset 90% of your social network. Obviously goes to show why younger generations are so much more nomadic. And sometimes you just meet someone that's like, how do you fucking know everybody? And there was this cool part in the middle of the chapter. There are people that are able to memorize hundreds of more names than the average. And these are like the outliers of connectors. We're in the Gladwell verse, the Malcolm Book galaxy now. He <laughs> wasted five pages writing out 200 people's last names. And he's like, identify how many of these names that you can remember and then your percent shows how good of a connector you are so you can mathematically find out these things for yourself take these personality experiments online i think when i was 12 i did a iq test online because i was curious and then at the end of it, it took like 45 minutes i was sweating doing these puzzles as a 12 year old i was sitting there and it's like all right now enter your <laughs> credit card information to find out your IQ. I think I failed the test. I didn't see that this was just a way to get my money. We below 70 points here. Gladwell is going. Some people got astronomical connectability. Starts talking about nepotism is the best way to get a job in the mafia and in Hollywood and in politics. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell was in Jeffrey Epstein's phone book. Stay with me here, people. Jeffrey Epstein is the best connector of all time. He knew everybody. If you look at these things are declassified. You could see who was on the Lolita Express. <laughs> There's that Eric Weinstein scientist. This guy's like, I have a geometric unity theory of everything. And he'll never explain it. I've watched a couple hours of his lectures online. This guy has met Epstein and he's like, he's a complete facade. He says he's in capital investment. He does nothing. He is just a front man to connect different people. So you could be on the friggin' intelligence side. They call it assets as a connector. It's huge for building a network. For Mavens, Malcolm's example was Roger Horchow. Again, with the hush puppies. This guy influenced the entire Lower West Side with the giant dog. Mavens are able to make certain products more prominent. Someone with a pre-existing clientele who's interested in new crap. So these are like your influencers, your friggin' fit tea sellers. They already have their fan base and they just like to try new products. He considers a lot of engineers to be Mavens because they decide where the industry standard is going. That was when we were talking about uh, Airbnb. If you have all your programmers that speak the same language, you're going to set up like a secret network that other people can't poach from you. Do you want mavens who have their own user base? And let's get salesmen, the last of the three. These are the guys that are pounding the concrete. You're never going to reach a tipping point. No business has ever hit any point of success without a salesman. <laughs> What's going to put you over? Some maven reviewing your products or some guy who's actually showing people the product review? 
No one's going to see your shit magically. All industries have gatekeepers, which Malcolm gets into plenty later in the book, and he ignores the rogue reviewer as a tastemaker. We all know this. In the digital age, he geeked out over his Silicon Valley friend for 15 pages. He's going, this person is a salesman and a maven. She has amazing optimism. She could sell snow to an Eskimo, blah, blah, blah. He's fucking simping over some chick. Milgram is a hundred times more. And he has mind-blowing experiments, shocking people behind curtains. If him and Marshall McCullough were to see the current influencer medium is the message culture, <laughs> they would lose their tenure. Malcolm gains some respect back with me. He's going, ABC, CBS, NBC, these three are the same publications they're selling you a heap of lies they got the biggest exposure and they're required to be on airports people are freaking glorified trump is an influencer <laughs> yo the maga hat was the biggest merch drop ever there's no more bigger middle figure you can wear malcolm is telling you here that your elected representatives are salesmen and mavens i would say they're closer to con men <laughs> you go to your elected representative saying your arm hurts you need help with your syphilis they knee you in the balls and go ah oh, your syphilis isn't bothering you too bad now is it rarely in life are you going to come across this like tech e-girl friend of malcolm who is as good of a salesman as a maven and very unlikely are they going to be your public servant let's go to chapter three the stickiness factor Joan Cooney was a 1960s TV producer tasked with creating an epidemic of children's proportions. This is talking about children programming. She had to fill a slot for an hour a day, five days a week. Insane amounts of airtime to fill. To reach a viral factor in that is going to be super difficult. So how does this tie into freaking politics with Malcolm? He's talking about privileged kids have a leg up when they go into elementary school. They're hooked on phonics. They've got personal aides prepping them. They probably go to private school anyway. <laughs> but Cooney is like, with my five hours a week of TV programming, I'm going to try to level this playing field. And she produced Sesame Street, not to be confused with Sesame Credits the authoritarian social control mechanism in China. Sesame Street, based on playing the kids' strengths, she knows you'll learn visually. You got the count. Mm, one, two. How come the numbers were always at the bottom of a pool? Remember that? Are they trying to tell me I need glasses here? And rhythmically singing was very good. Cooney found out, and this was able to help lower income kids we learned in Noam Chomsky's book that black schools would teach how to sing to memorize equations and shit in rhythm different ways to learn Sesame Street was kind of white <laughs> when I think about it I was watching Mr. Noodles remember that they got like the backyardigans will bruck it down for you while teaching you about syntax <laughs> multicultural edutainment the reason Sesame Street succeeded, Malcolm says, he, they started a new trend. Back to that marketing book. You don't have to be the best, you just have to be first. Amelia Earhart, third person to ever go across the Atlantic, 
Bert Hinkler did it for cheaper, found the fastest way, nobody remembers him. But Amelia Earhart was the first woman to do it. The first Sesame Street, isn't that different from Dora or Pet Rescue, but they just did it first. Blue's Clues, Blue's Clues, Moon Shoes, the anti-gravity kid power shoes, remember that shit? That was a high class toy. I had carpet skates. That never reached the tipping point. You would like grease up the bottom of these just plastic things. You'd be able to slide on carpet. Moon shoes, blues clues, all made it to the big time. Malcolm bought up Jim Henson, the puppet master, made it from Sesame Street to the Muppets. The <laughs> Muppets are racially insensitive now. He made memeable ass characters. Kermit is going to be memorized forever. That is a tipping point of puppetry. The law of few applies, of course, to academics for the last part of the chapter. In the 90s, there was an explosion of this formula of kids' infotainment, and they were doing these mid-show cognitive pop quizzes. Remember Dora? Swipe or no swiping! Think about any trend, though. Somebody finds out the formula, and then everybody mocks it. Coon was just a lucky one. She was the first to get to try to fill up some airtime for five hours a week. And then, uh, if we're talking about virality, you gotta make it relevant to the modern age. I bring up Tosh.0 on the show. He just did his final season. This guy was on the air for 20 years. Like, this was when I was becoming sentient. I never knew what stand-up comedy was, but in that middle part, after he did the ridiculousness video trashes, he would just put up a picture and then talk about a subject for five minutes. I was like, what is this? How are you able to be funny while just exploring premises within a topic? The next five minutes of the show, he would turn the fucking what-what in the butt, some internet hustler into a uh, sensation. Remember 15 minutes of fame? That used to be the tipping point. Let's take the intermediate decade. You had like the bagel boss, the fucking cash me outside girl in the 2010s. They only got five minutes of airtime. <laughs> and in the 2020s, we got the TikTok cycle of tipping points where you could get exposure to a million eyes, but it's only for five seconds at a time. It's a totally different landscape. You need an afterword in this book, Gladwell. Tip for stickiness is being able to package the right information for the right circumstances. Cooney had five hours, so she did little cognitive quizzes. If you got five seconds on a TikTok reel, somebody's got to get hit in the face with a pie. Chapter four, the power of context. This is the one talking about crime began this saga. Malcolm's chapters are completely inconsistent. One will be 10 pages, the next is 50 or greater. And he started this one with a story about Manhattan, mid-1980s. They called it Fear City. You ever see those old posters, Grim Reaper? 80s Manhattan, there's a robbery. A guy is at gunpoint on the subway. Somebody's pointing a gun at him through their jacket gangster ass move you ever seen the pistol in a paper bag what else are you pointing your sandwich at someone that's not very discreet <laughs> the pocket point <laughs> love that move 
The guy was refusing to give up his gun to another uh, gang member on the subway. And so there was a big shootout, made headlines because there were other people on the train car. The guy was acquitted on the murder and became a hero because he was able to break up this gang violence because he had a gun. It's just like the Texas church story, good guy with a gun versus two bad guys with guns. Guns are illegal. You can see where Malcolm is going with this. What made Chicago hit the tipping point and turn into Chirac? <laughs> Obviously, the laws are not helping. They got the strictest gun laws in Chicago, and it's some of the safest cities in Texas where you got open carry. The laws aren't working! Malcolm is hoping that Chicago is just experiencing a crime wave, like New York in the 80s. 2,000 murders a year, it's just a crime wave. <laughs> now Manhattan isn't even on the top of 30 cities with gun bullshit. Also because their uh, property went up. Think about gentrification you started talking about, is it really bad? It's putting down the crime rate. He's getting at the bigger point. I have a criminal justice degree. It's called broken windows policing. They say um, if we don't gentrify the neighborhood, it's just going to continue to fester and get worse and worse. So you got to fix the windows so people see that this is on the up and up. It bleeds into the deterrence argument. But if we're talking about statistics for the book today, the numbers don't support it. The reason that crime goes down is when you make harsher sentencing. Making more activities crime, like getting more people tied up into the criminal justice system, isn't as good for crime rates <laughs> as just making one act super hard. So repeat offenders, they have time in jail to rethink, do I really want to try that crime again if there's that much more of a risk? Exactly. Laws don't work. Criminals are pretty smart. They're taking calculated risks when you get to the professional criminal level. So it's not just sentencing harder, but making sure that there's less crime is obviously going to be Malcolm's lefty take. He's like, crime is the result of poverty. That is verifiably false. This is everything my fucking liberal professors were saying. If there just wasn't any poverty, people would be nice to each other. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Rich people are scamming each other all damn day. Crime is not exclusive to poverty. Malcolm gets off to this pre-racism shit. Rich people love trying to scam and best one another. This is literal regurgitated rhetoric that you're getting from this like academic side of crime. Take a more nuanced look for yourself. Read some Fyodor Dostoevsky. Best I could do is quote Saul Goodman, the show about the lawyer. <laughs> That's why I went to fucking get a criminal justice degree. I was thinking maybe I continue on to be a corrupt defense attorney or a corrupt cop. <laughs> Saul Goodman, he's going, giving this man a law degree is equivalent to giving a chimpanzee a machine gun. You could pick up a hooker and tell the cop that's pulling you over. Oh, looks like you guys, why are you going to this motel? I'm about to record our interrelations with my iPhone, therefore classifying this sex act as pornography. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good day. Am I being detained or am I free to go? It's a chimp with a machine gun. 
if we actually taught people in school <laughs> how the system worked instead of friggin' times tables, you'd have a lot more people abusing the law. Malcolm's, of course, saying we have to use this societal influence like your lefty professors will lie to you for your own good, they think it is. Did you see in, like, Sim City? Just getting big picture with it. They're always coming out with new versions of this game. The developers are very funny. For that Smart Cities episode, I used one of their ads for the game. It's the tree's fault for being in your way. <laughs> they made it, so in this new Sim City game, it got millions of hits on YouTube. If you don't employ law enforcement as the city manager, you wind up with this utopian zero-crime city. You know, what's more powerful, social control of puritanical shame or not telling people what to do? <laughs> I don't know. We've never gotten to try both sides of the experiment. Crime waves. They're going to come and go. We just got to hope they don't hit these tipping points. Obviously, the more that you put these things on TV, the more it influences other people's to do it. They call it copycat shooters. I don't know if this is true, but this was Malcolm's argument for second half of the chapter. I think what's more interesting, how come, like, <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell, these big brain writers who are telling stories about Blue's Clues, how come you're not looking at the tipping point of authoritarian governments? <laughs> Tens of millions of people are dying every 80 years because of this shit. Think about stop-and-frisk policing in New York, 1990s to 1994. Misdemeanors and minor offenses were certifying searches for cops, and the Fourth Amendment has been gone. In the past 20 years, you're seeing in New Jersey, weed was just legalized, and the police union is saying, now we don't have a reason to search people. We used to be able to say, I smell weed on you, so now I have probable cause to look through your shit. And now that it's legal... You don't have this way to dismantle somebody's <laughs> fucking constitutional rights given to you by God. All of this law shit matters because it's setting precedence for your rights. We are reaching a tipping point of policing. Stop and frisk was finally disallowed in 2011 because for eight years black people were just allowed to be shaken down. <laughs> your skin color is probable cause. I'm going to look through your pockets, rife through your fucking apartment. Next time it's going to be the UN cementing, welding your door shut like they're doing in China because they think you have the Wang Chung Lung. It just gets bigger and bigger. Where is our baseline going? SCOTUS. I took some Supreme Court of the U.S. like interpretational law classes and how you could bend the law by definition. The Trace Act now can go through your cookies without a warrant. <laughs> You need due process, a warrant to have your stuff looked through. Not anymore. We are definitely reaching a tipping point with this crap. Who's the maven? You know, we need somebody to say the British are coming again. That law class that I took talked very heavily about this 1800s case where Alexander Hamilton was fighting with courts for privacy of in-residence. So motels were starting to be forced to give the name of whoever did business with them to the state. And Hammy, who's <laughs> given freshly minted bills to prostitutes, he can't be having his wife finding out what inns that he's staying at. Hamilton was an anti-federalist. He was like, 
this is why we exactly detailed in the Fourth Amendment that you need to... Pro am I under arrest here? Why am I being searched? You, I have rights. Stop. <laughs> you don't even have fucking bodily autonomy in 2022. Your body is not your choice. Tipping points of all kinds. Get creative with it, Malcolm. You can't talk about fucking Blue the dog for uh, 300 pages. I would go as far to say that a dense wave of crime is healthy for society. Raskolnikov, recreational murder. Less laws make people more safe. Like I said, when you outlaw guns, now only the criminals have guns. Laws outsource your autonomy. Bandits don't adhere to morals, so why do we think they would adhere to our laws? <laughs> That's one that'll keep you up at night. These people don't even have a fucking moral compass. You think they care what it says in the courtroom? Malcolm interviewed goats at the end who said there is nothing more viciously savage than a rat backed into a corner, and that is what our legal system does to low-functioning people. Let's go to chapter 5. This one's called The Magic Number. It starts talking about books. It's going to be a meta one. The Yaya Sisterhood. Yayo. I mean my Yayo-laced coffee. The Yaya Sisterhood was written in 1996 and sold 30,000 copies. In a month, Rebecca Wells, the author, her sales doubled when she tasked her agent with setting up eight-person meet-and-greets. They were doing 700 people events in uh, San Francisco. The Yaya Sisterhood became like a cult classic up there. It was... Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, that one went viral, hit a tipping point, because now you give the book to someone else in your clan, and the whole point for Malcolm here is this eight-person meet-and-greet had people coming with their grandmothers and their daughters. So within two years, by 1998, Wells sold two million of her books, and marketing is super effective. It has a stickiness factor when you get intergenerational. Same jargon for the book. This chapter gets much more interesting with the magic number. He started talking about movie theaters, and you're like, how does this connect in any sort of way? Average movie theater has 225 seats, and in the peaks of fucking Cinema Prime, on average, primetime shows used to have 150 people in the theater. I'm starting to realize, in hindsight, that is what I loved about going to the movies. <laughs> I had a bit about going to see A Quiet Place in theaters. Easiest script to ever write. Movie about not talking. I mean, come on here. I bought Pop Rocks, pistachio shells I was cracking, crinkling burrito tinfoil. Quiet Place. You get to see what makes these 150 people react in a room. What's the tipping point? A movie with no... We're watching silent films. <laughs> Out here, think about Rocky Horror Picture Show. That one exists today because it started intergenerational cult classic. It's in the theme of the magic number. 150 people on average used to show up to the cinema. That is the magic number. We talked about before the connectors and that last name test you're able to store in your head around 150 people. And just to wrap up the point of like getting a movement, Rocky Horror Picture Show 
starting Buzz Yaya Sisterhood show. These uh, video game streamers have become some of the most viral trends of this decade. It's they're always giving um, giveaways. Like, I'm just giving fucking free... I think half that shit is fake. <laughs> but I see in my domain, we did Into the Wild, the John Krakauer book here. The original signed copy of that goes for $500. So in any niche of any market, you're going to have a user base where people will pay for the most goods if it, you know, strikes a chord with them. Love Mark Marketing. Let's get into the fucking magic number, 150. We did some Milgram earlier. Do you remember who Dunbar is? He did a bunch of studies where on average, people can remember 100 to 200 others and have a meaningful interaction with them. And you can remember hundreds of more people's faces and names, but there's not gonna be any weight to that connection. 150 people, it can mean something. Who the fuck has 150 close friends? Did he meet these people at the Dunbar? I'm gonna buy real estate on a dying college campus, open up the Dunbar. He did studies that bartenders, professional ones, from memory, could do 150 drinks. Mechanics could memorize 150 moving parts. There's something with how your brain could categorize information to... You know, 150 works out great. That fucking marketing book, I remember the guy was getting into Gematria. He's like, seven is the magic number. There are seven numbers of the world. My phone number, for some reason, has seven digits. Seven twice makes 14. 14 was the age I lost my virginity. Virginity has three eyes, like the awoken spirit. <laughs> Earth to Malcolm out here. <laughs> if you can remember more than 150... What makes 150 so magic of a number? Iconic chapter. This was um, best-selling book of the decade. This is widely known as the chapter that popularized Dunbar's number. People know this nowadays. <laughs> you still got 800 Facebook friends. Malcolm went on to talk about <laughs> a healthy human population on the globe is 50 million. So he started getting into his Billy Gates... Jeffrey Epstein phone book Preacher Box had an interesting point to wrap the chapter about Gore-Tex fabric. It's based out of Newark, Delaware, and they sell a military line of waterproof cloth. And they got a civilian line of products that wasn't doing too well. They were making everything out of this waterproof. They're like wrapping planes with it down in Dover, Delaware military base. They minimized their civilian line to 150 products became millionaires send it back on rebecca wells the yaya sisterhood she says it wasn't the author or the book but the relationships that people formed with one another that made her book the crown jewel of advertising pretty good chapter got a couple left chapter six rumors and sneakers this one's straight up for the hype beasts and the sneakerheads out there started with the story of Airwalk, where once a San Diego-based skate brand named after the trick that only a few men will ever pull off you. It's only like a vert trick. How are you going to get enough? You pull the board out from under your feet, stand like you're being crucified, Jesus Christ, with the board out to the side, and then take two or three strides in the middle of the air like you're air walking. <laughs> 
Great name for Escape brand. Main product was a suede shoe with a super thick sole cushioned for skateboarding. Within their first five years of business, they did 13 million a year persuaded Foot Locker to take on their product and in 1994 made 44 million. 1995, 150 million. They just hit their tipping point by selling the Foot Locker. You can have the perfect shoe designed for skateboarding that could take tricks to the next level, but unless you get the right mainstream merchant Foot Locker, you're not going to be put over. You can have the most inspired ad campaign in shoe history. People still won't buy it. Think about Black Mamba. <laughs> they fucking released a memorial shoe for Kobe. You gotta have these fast-moving boutique trends. <laughs> Malcolm's like, y'all got the helicopter crash nine? Malcolm's going airwalks succeeded because their big commercial was two people putting on airwalks after sex. Like, it was shot from a camera underneath the bed and it showed two people just putting on air. It was crafty marketing. I don't remember who the firm was, but you gotta hire a PR brand. It's an epidemic commercial. <laughs> no one took the time to think the perspective. Is there a creep underneath the bed? You notice nowadays, sluts love to wear vans. The shoe? Trust me, fellas, you're out at the bar. Just uh, write in next time. It's going to work for you. Not all van wearers are sluts, but all sluts wear vans. And all van dwellers are man sluts. <laughs> Malcolm. He artistically compared this supreme swag of the 2010s to spreading rumors in farmland. So rumors and sneakers chapter, he's got to connect the old to the new. Talks about an Iowan farm in 1920. We're getting insanely rich because they were rumored to have good spuds. It's like a whisper in the shoe game. My cousin, he flips shoes. He's amazing at this. He showed me one time. He had a pair of Jordans that came in a concrete shoebox. You see all these people with like uh, skincare products and they do unboxing videos. The shoe game is the best at creating and repackaging hype. Literally, for their shoe unboxing, you're taking out cement wooden boxes. They know how to do it best. If you're trying to go viral, take note from skate brands from obviously the sneaker game potato farms if you're malcolm he's going a rumor even about your soil is going to be just as good as a whisper in the shoe game it's the old um allegory jack and the beanstalk that's how he got to ride the thing to the top he told everybody he's got the magic beans i could be reading too much into the fairy tale think about modern skaters and the TikTok algorithm. I'll try to keep it up to date again. You can now watch 10 skaters within one minute. I remember 2008 early internet, I was going on YouTube to seek out Ryan Sheckler and Bam Margera skate videos. Like you would get onto one single reel. It's much harder to get that person to person buzz with this new dynamic formula. So you gotta have some sort of a maven to start a rumor about your brand. Why would this skater be any better than the last one you just heard? And how do you start a rumor? What did <laughs> Churchill has the best quote 
Something like a rumor could make it around the world before a man can get his pants on. Best rumor has to have a kernel of truth. And the psychology of a rumor goes once it's circulating around the classroom, around the office. It doesn't matter who started the rumor unless it gets pinned back on you. You know, the old sitcom, you're a loser if you created your own nickname and now you have the bad nickname forever. This is why you need a maven. You need a fall guy, someone to go out there and act like they created the rumor, the whisper in the game for you. You look at <laughs> like the most professional entertainers, it's a big amount of showmanship and playing into one, the Tom and Jerry of it all. You act like you hate each other. A rumor is great for marketing, could put you to that airwalk level. Lambesis was the ad agency that sexed up airwalk. It's like a guerrilla ad campaign firm. They go around and act like they don't know oh, who did this. They made a story for Airwalk in the early 2000s based out of Roswell. They were going, man claims Airwalks are stolen by aliens. <laughs> this is like the New York Times or no, CNN, the most trusted name in news. Half of their headlines are obviously paid for by Coca-Cola telling you to be less white. <laughs> Lambesis. You watched the Super Bowl this year. You know a little bit more about ad agencies and how they grift off of cultural movements. <laughs> Lambesis says when a product fails to make it into the mainstream, it is because it hasn't rooted itself broadly enough in the culture. Gotta sow the seeds, airwalks. We are skating in sex. Gotta pigeonhole yourself in order to make it to the mainstream. Lambesis is saying you're not going to have the stickiness factor if you don't sow the soil before thematic for the chapter linking forming to sneakers let's go to chapter 7 it gets sad before the last one suicide and cigarettes began the chapter on exposure and marketing being more important than a product's side effects. Like I said, no one you could have the best product ever, no one knows if you don't have exposure. And especially your product could literally kill you. It could insert tar into your lungs. The best example ever, cigarettes. This product does nothing for you, and we love it. It is the most epidemic product of the 1900s because it had great exposure scientists were being paid to say cigarettes make you skinny he's proven a great point with this chapter we just had the whole entire book on smoking so you guys get the gist here we're seeing record high teen suicides though this year and they correlate high with places with strict lockdowns no correlation doesn't say everything but if you're gonna use CDC logic <laughs> you are directly killing children by ruining their uh, high school best years of their life, whatever. Suicide is an epidemic. He talked about a study in the 1960s, some Micronesian guy. He had the key to the city. Everybody loved him, and he killed himself. Little boys in the town from the age of 12 to 14 started to kill themselves as well because he was such a well-respected man, and he's like, <laughs> you know... And so they had nothing to look up to. They said in Micronesia, the average age a kid used to know about suicide was reduced to eight years old. 
Like an eight-year-old shouldn't be seeing this thing. U.S. media filled with cigarettes. <laughs> that show, 13 Reasons Why, we're teaching our kids exactly how to kill yourself in a bathtub. Very graphically disgusting. And even from eight years old, you got guns all over TV. Violence is hyper-normalized. Prime example back there, Micronesia. You put a guy killing himself on the news, a mass shooting on the news, might give people who are impressionable ideas. People don't get introspective until someone else makes them look in the mirror. So let me throw in at you. Anderson Cooper, heir of the Vanderbilt throne. They live in that castle in Pennsylvania. American royalty, it's like the Versailles of the eastern seaboard. His brother, Cooper, billionaire, jumped off the balcony. This guy with billions of dollars isn't even happy. <laughs> What do you want to get introspective about? Is that what's going to make your life meaningful? Can't just read about suicide and cigarettes every goddamn week and not make a joke. That's what's going to make it go viral. you got to sensationalize a story. Beloved man of the town killed himself and here's why. What bleeds leads. Think back to the caveman era. There always used to be the storyteller around the fire and most stories sucked. Ugh. Grognon man who once went outside of cave for many mile. Got a caveman heckler in the back. Oog, let me guess. Eaten by jaguar. Oh ho ho ho. Every story used to be the same. It ended with death. So tribes who survived were able to fashion their own stories into ones about the stars, the paradise to come. I'm saying in this chapter you gotta reinvent your media diet. It's just as important what you're putting into your gut as what you're putting into your brain. What do you, are you consuming things that challenge your own thought paradigm or just living in an echo chamber? Last chapter will probably be a minute long, but it's pretty cool how positivity is hardwired into the DNA of people who are able to pass on their genome. Laughter is the cure, baby. We're not here to psychoanalyze suicide. It's an enigma. I'm not a fucking therapist, but as a biological entity out here, your only prerogative is to survive. Adapt, overcome, survive, as Bear Grylls says. <laughs> Something's not right if you don't want to survive. It's illegal to kill yourself, but it's not illegal to smoke. This is too absurd. We got to rely on the good of man to reframe the story here give us a positive outlook some hope for the future some real leadership before we hit a tipping point of evil just like humans have a different tolerance for nicotine addiction and suffering the stickiness effect and marketing has a different effect on people's mind so it's kind of a cop-out malcolm's going before the last chapter yeah marketing doesn't work on everybody <laughs> chapter eight the conclusion, guy just talked about Georgia Sadler, a nurse treating diabetes in the black community of San Diego. Georgia would hold church groups to inform people on healthy habits, only to show people already know what's healthy. It's not that hard to figure out. Put less calories in machine than expend. Ah. Uh... It's hard to change people's behavior. Sadler discovered that the best way to get into a client's ear 
was through their stylist. Women, they're sitting in the chair for hours at a time. This is someone that they trust with their vanity. A woman, this has to be the most informed person ever. They touch, <laughs> they make me look good. So this genius, Miss Sadler, was like, I'm gonna tell every hairdresser to get people to have a healthier lifestyle. Malcolm Gladwell bringing the story full circle. You gotta get that person-to-person -person connection. As long as there are tipping points, we can remain hopeful that there is a way to change. When every single gate has been closed, <laughs> there's no way to get a new message to the top. There's not going to be any more tipping points, and you're living in a fixed future at that point. Really interesting look at the trends today. I would suggest the book for as much backhand as I gave it. Malcolm Gladwell, very creative writer. As for a media diet, <laughs> it's uh, well balanced. He's got a lot of gravy on his mashed potatoes. No reading required here on Nick's Nonfiction. That was Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point. I want to thank you guys for staying tuned for another episode. Next time on the show, we have got a mystery edition. We're at a monetized level out here, baby. Functional level. You're guaranteed content. Three videos a week on the YouTube for free. And always either a live action or a fully exclusive book on the Patreon. And again, entire backlog is over there if you want to know outliers. And that was my completely unfiltered opinion. Second time ever doing a book show over there on the Patreon. Thank you guys for staying tuned. I'm going to see you next week. It's likely going to be our May-themed episode, Robin. And that'll break up some of the politics we had to dabble in today. One week, brand new book coming at you. It was a fun one. Thank you, guys. My name is Nick Munez. I will see you all then. Later. <laughs>